Welcome to Practical Christian Living. The Bible says in the book of Philippians that he laid aside his glory and he became lower than the angels, which would be you and I. The ranking goes humans, angels, God. And he laid aside his glory. Jesus, the King of Glory, didn't look like a king when he walked this earth as a man. It can be difficult for us to grasp that Jesus, as we study his life on this earth in the Gospels, was 100% God and 100% man. Today on Practical Christian Living in our series, Jesus Appointments, we look at the amazing event of the Transfiguration as we see Jesus in all his glory. With Mark 9, verses 1 through 10, here's Robert Furrow. The title of our message today is, Is Jesus the Son of God? Is Jesus the Son of God? And in chapter 9 of the book of Mark, we see the curtain drawn back. It's as if God gives us a look at Jesus in all of His glory. We see the Son of God revealed in His glory. This is a preview of what is to come. It's as if God is taking Peter, James, and John up on top of this mountain and showing them what is in the future. They're going to go through some horrific times. Things are going to be really tough for them. They're going to go through a lot of difficulties in planning the church around the world. And God wanted them to know what it was going to be like. But God not only wanted them to know what it was going to be like, He wanted us to know what it was like. He wanted us to get a vision of Jesus in all of His glory. And that's what we find here in this text today. There are seven key events in the life of Jesus. And this is one of them. And let me see if I can get all seven. I don't have them in my notes. Let me see if I can get all seven. There is his baptism, his temptation, his transfiguration, which we're covering today, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. I got it. But these are key times in the life of Christ. And when you study each one of them, there are significant things that we learn. And the transfiguration is definitely one of them. So let's take a look. We'll start in Mark chapter 9, verse 1. It says, And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. When I was a teenager, I, and after I committed my life to Christ, I made a decision that I wanted to read all the way through the Bible, and the New Testament especially, starting in Matthew. So I began to read. And when I got to Matthew 17, I read that verse. There are some of you standing here today who are not going to die until you see the Son of God in His power. And I couldn't figure it out. I was like, those guys are all dead. Jesus hasn't come in His power. I don't know what this means. And I literally stopped reading it. I literally had to close it because I could not figure it out. And even talking to some of the pastors in the church that I was in, they really didn't give me a really good explanation. But here's the crazy thing. Had I just kept reading, now I know the importance of context. Now I know that when I read something and I don't really understand it, that when I look at what's said before and afterwards, you can find a context for what it means. Some of them that were alive, some of the disciples were not going to die before they saw God in all of his glory. I wonder how the disciples felt about that and what they thought about it. In verse 2 it says, now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, 
and he was transfigured before them. I think everything in the Bible means something. And the fact that Jesus waited six days for this, six is the number of man, six is the number of work. And I think that maybe what he's showing is after six days, he, go, he takes them up on a mountain and he's transfigured in front of them. He shows them what eternity is going to be like, that you and I have six days of work in front of us, whatever the work is that we have to do. But after the work is done, we are going to see him in all of his glory. No matter what we go through, no matter how hard the work is, no matter how easy the work is, it's different for other people. There are races that we run. You run a race, I run a race. But one day our work will be done and we will enter into the presence of God and we will see him in all of his glory. It says that he took Peter, James and John. This is his inner circle. Peter obviously is the leader of the disciples. There are several times that the disciples are listed in the Bible. Peter is always at the top. He's always number one. And Judas is always the 12th. He's always the last one. And so Peter is, is one of the leaders. And then James and John are two brothers. And the interesting thing about James and John is that James dies first. He's the youngest of all the disciples to be killed. He's killed early in the book of Acts. He's killed by the sword by Herod. And John is the oldest to die. John dies last. All the other death of the apostles is in between this bracket of both of them. And Jesus, for whatever reason, wanted to share with these three guys. We know that Peter is instrumental in the book of Matthew. We know that Peter writes the books of Peter and uh, James also. And John, writing John and Revelation and first and second, third John. So he led them up on this high mountain probably Mount Hermon. It's the closest mountain that's there. There's snow. There's other places that are suggested that maybe he took them out into Mount Sinai where Moses had the burning bush or Mount Horeb where Elijah heard the still small voice. Some of that is suggested. We aren't told what mountain it is, but certainly Horeb would be the closest mountain to where they were. And it says in verse three that his clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Suddenly he began to glow. The Bible says in the book of Philippians that he laid aside his glory and he became lower than the angels, which would be you and I. The ranking goes humans, angels, God. And he laid aside his glory. And when we see Jesus as he's interacting here on the world and we see the amazing things that he does and we see all the authority that he has, he can talk to dead people. But when he talks to dead people, he raises them from the dead. He says to the little girl, Talitha Kumi, little girl arise. He doesn't say, Father, would you now raise her from the dead? He speaks to a dead girl and she rises from the dead. He speaks to a storm and it is calm. He has the authority. He tells a man who is paralyzed, pick up your bed and walk. He tells a man with a withered hand, reach out your hand. And his hand is strengthened at the command that he has. And we see his glory and who he is in all of those things. However, here they get a glimpse of him in his glory. And what an amazing thing it must be to see Jesus in his glory. One day he will return in all of his glory. We've got the song that we sing. I can only imagine what it will be like. I think what will it be like when we see him in all of his glory? But I also think we're all going to fall down. I think we will be driven to the ground, throw ourselves before our Savior, because I don't think that we have a real grasp on how absolutely amazing 
he really is. Peter writes about this event years later, and he says that I saw Christ in all of his majesty in preeminence. The majesty, preeminence. Preeminence is the highest. He is the highest there could be. He has preeminence over all, the Bible tells us. In Colossians, we're told that there is none higher than him, that Jesus is as high as any, and we're seeing that take place today. And that may very well be the whole point of this text, showing the preeminence of Jesus. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18. He says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power of our coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory. With such a voice came from heaven, the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard the voice that came from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. That's Peter's eyewitness testimony. I was there. I saw it. I heard the voice. But I love the next few verses. He says, but we have the more sure word of prophecy. In essence, he says, don't believe just because I told you that I saw these things, but we have the more sure word of prophecy that we can have confidence in what we believe because we can go back to the scriptures that were long written down. And it says in verse four that Elijah appeared to them with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Elijah, one of the greatest prophets, and Moses, the giver of the law, suddenly appear. It's interesting that Elijah never died. The Bible says that when Elijah went up into heaven, that he was with Elisa, who would take his place as a prophet, and a chariot of fire separated them, and a whirlwind took Elijah up into heaven. That's a way to go to the afterlife, by the way. I want to go up in a whirlwind. If a tornado hits me and kills me, you guys will go, he got what he was asking for. <laughs> but Elijah never dies. And the interesting thing about Moses is that Michael, in Jude 1.9, Michael and Lucifer argue over the body of Moses. You ever thought about that strange passage? Why were Michael and Lucifer fighting over the body of Moses? And it says that Michael did not say, I rebuke you, but instead he said to Lucifer, the Lord rebuke you. And you and I learn from that, that we don't rebuke Satan. We don't rebuke the demonic forces. We say the Lord rebuke you. We call on the stronger than the strong man to rebuke. If there is any demonic activity taking place or going on, you call out on the name of Jesus, who is stronger than the strong man to rebuke him. But there's still this account. Think of that. These two guys are meeting with Jesus. One of them didn't die. And the other one has Lucifer and Michael fighting over his body. Well, I think that there's a reason for this. I think that in Revelation 1 through 3, we find two people who God calls my two witnesses. And then he says, these are the two lampstands and the two olive trees. And he makes reference to Zechariah, where there were two lampstands that were fed by olive trees the oil came out of the olive trees and continued to feed the light. And it was continual. The lampstands would signify the light of God, the word of God going out in the world and being anointed by the Holy Spirit and that God is continually anointing his word. That he didn't just anoint this when it was written, but as we read through the scriptures, God is anointing it now. And those were two witnesses, just as these guys were two witnesses. It says... Also in that passage in Revelation 11, 
3 through 13, that they are given power when someone attacks them, that fire would come from their mouth and devour them. And also they could shut up the heavens for three and a half years. Or they had the power to shut up the heavens and open them up again. And they could turn water into blood and bring all kinds of plagues on Jerusalem. This all took place in Jerusalem. It's interesting to me that Elijah called fire down from heaven, that Elijah shut up the heavens for three and a half years, and these two witnesses are going to minister for three and a half years. It's interesting to me that Moses turned water into blood and brought plagues upon Israel. It seems that we might be getting a clue as to who these two witnesses are. There are only two people in the Bible that didn't die, by the way. You know who they are? Enoch and Elijah. And the Bible says Enoch walked with God and was no more. And for that reason, some people believe that the two witnesses are Enoch and Elijah because the Bible says it's appointed once for man to die and then comes judgment. So these two guys didn't die. They have to die and then comes judgment. However, there are exceptions to people who died and weren't judged right away. Lazarus died twice. The Bible says you die once and then comes judgment. Lazarus died twice. The little girl died twice. She died. Jesus spoke, raised her from the dead, and she died twice. So the fact that Moses dies twice doesn't create a problem. There are other people who died twice as well. I think that Enoch instead is a type of the church. Enoch is a Gentile. These two guys are Jews in Jerusalem. Enoch is a type of the church that is taken up because he walks with God and is no more before the destruction of the flood comes upon the earth. A picture of the church being taken out of this world before the time of destruction comes upon this earth. By the way, signs of the times, we may not be that far away from the times that the Bible tells us about. Therefore, some say it's Enoch and Elijah, but I think the most likely candidates, do I know for sure? No. Do I think the most likely candidates, I think, are Moses and Elijah. They did the miracles that Moses and Elijah did. Elijah was taken alive into heaven. There was a fight over Moses's body. Jesus met with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus said in Matthew 17, if you can handle it, John the Baptist is Elijah, but Elijah will come again before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So Jesus said in his time after John the Baptist had died that Elijah was going to come again. So I think from all of those things that perhaps these guys are, how do you like that? You lay all of that out and you say, perhaps these guys are the two witnesses. I believe absolutely that they are the best candidates for it. In verse 5, when Moses and Elijah show up, then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. First of all, you're on a mountain with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, and all you can say is, it's good for us to be here. That falls in the no-duh category. It's good that you're there on the mountain with these three. Secondly, you want to build a tabernacle. I'm a good tent builder. I'm going to build a tent for you, for Moses, Elijah. Let's all hang out here forever, which would be nice, wouldn't it? If we could take the peak of our lives, the mountaintop experiences, and if we could say, I just want to live here forever. Let me just stay right here. But we don't get to do that. And in fact, there's a problem here. To Peter, it's Moses, it's Elijah, and it's Jesus. To God, it's Moses, it's Elijah, and it's Jesus, the Son of God. He has preeminence over Moses and Elijah. These two prophets are the greatest prophets of all of Israel. And he says, let's build three tabernacles. It says, because he did not know what to say. And that makes sense. For they were greatly afraid. I wonder what I would say in the same situation. 
I probably would say something that was even stupider than that, so I'm glad I wasn't there. While he's talking, the Bible says in Matthew, while he's talking, verse 7, and a cloud came and overshadowed them. A cloud bank rolled in, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. Now, I've always made a joke about this, that Peter's talking and God's like, give me a little shuddy and listen to Jesus. You have Jesus with you, listen to him. But I think there's more than that going on here. I think that God is giving his testimony that this is his son and you are to listen to Jesus. If you are looking for advice from the living God, then you have a voice that comes out of the clouds that says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. If there is anything that we should do, it is listen to the words of Jesus. In fact, when you study the teachings of Jesus, they are the most amazing teachings. There really and truly is nothing like it. The words that you read from Jesus are absolutely powerful and people were moved by it. And so God the Father says, this is my son, hear him. Two things that he says. Number one, this is my son. I want to read you Psalms chapter 2. A while ago, I went through passages in the Old Testament that revealed Jesus as the Messiah, that talked about the coming Messiah and how Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. He said to the woman at the well, I who speak to you am he. He said to Peter, when Peter said, you're the Messiah, he said, don't tell anybody. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Now listen to this Psalms. It's a Psalm of David, Psalm chapter 2, and it speaks of the Messiah. It says, why do the nations rage? And why do people plot vain things? The word vain means useless. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The anointed is the Messiah. Literally, that's the Messiah. That's what the word Messiah is. They plot against the Messiah saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. He shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. This is Jerusalem. And I will declare the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is Psalms. This is the Old Testament. This is the Hebrew Bible. And God says that in Jerusalem, he will set his son and he will say, you are my son. Today I have anointed you. I have begotten you. This idea of being begotten means that he was born as a man. There are references to the son of God that certainly are outside of that realm, being the, the second part of the Godhead. But here he says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you that the son of God would be born. And no wonder Isaiah 9, 6 says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Ask of me and I will give you, he says, verse 8, the nations for an inheritance and the earth for your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. He now addresses these kings that want to shed off any responsibility to God whatsoever. Therefore, be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. These are leaders of men. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son 
lest he be angry with you. Make peace with the son. Kiss the son. Lest he be angry at you and you perish in your way. He says, make sure to make things right between you and the son of God or you will perish in your way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all of those who put their trust in him. God spoke of the Son of God, his own Son being begotten long before Jesus came on the scene. No wonder then after Jesus was baptized, do you remember what happened? The Holy Spirit fell upon him like a dove and a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Again, it was a statement that he is my Son and now on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my Son, listen to him. If there is anything that we can take from this Bible study tonight, it's to listen to Jesus to say, Lord, you speak and I will hear. We have that testimony from Peter that saw him change and from God the Father who speaks from heaven. It says in verse eight, suddenly when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but Jesus with themselves. After this voice says that from heaven. Now, as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one these things that they had seen till the son of man was risen from the dead. And they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the raising from the dead meant. It's about the middle of the ministry of Jesus. As he's coming down the mountain, he says, don't tell anybody until I am risen from the dead. And they don't go, Peter, James, and John, what's that mean? Remember, Jesus spoke a lot in parables. And I think that they wanted to act a lot like they knew what was going on. And I think the disciples were like, I don't want to ask a question. What do you mean risen from the dead? But can you imagine having that experience and not being able to tell anybody? They get down to the 12 and Bartholomew comes up and says, hey, uh, what'd you guys do? Uh, just hung out. They had to ask him something and they're not supposed to tell anybody. Can you imagine how this must have burned in their hearts that they had gone up on this mountain, that Jesus had been transfigured before him, that Moses and Elijah appeared to them? And then a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is truly one of the key events. I'd mentioned those key events early on in this study. This is truly one of those key events for several reasons. I think our application of this text is that whatever we go through now, we're walking through the six days now. If we make a commitment to Christ, then we will see him in his glory and whatever we're going through now, we go through it now because that's where we're headed. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And one day our race will be done and we will enter into the presence of God. There are two ways. Either we're going to go be with him or he's going to come and get us. But when that race is done, we will see him in all of his glory. You may be facing difficulties now. You may be facing hard times. You may be going through struggles but you will one day see him face to face. I love Psalms 34 that says, and they looked upon him and their faces were radiant. We will one day be in his presence, even though we go through struggles and difficulties. And if you're facing them now, you're in the six days, but one day you will see Jesus in all of his glory. Run a good race, fight a good fight, stand strong for him. Do the work that he's called you to do. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Know the call and the anointing that God has put upon you and be used by him in these dark days. For God is looking for such who will worship him in spirit and truth 
And God is looking for those who will say, here I am, Lord, send me. We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, Calvary Tucson is open and holding physical services while being mindful of social distancing guidelines. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service online at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living Radio has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or have questions about salvation? Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson and Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living Sunday mornings at 8.30 on KGUN 9 TV. May we walk worthy while we wait for the return of our Savior. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.